Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, welcome to the Joyful Courage podcast, a place for inspiration and transformation as we try and keep it together while parenting our tweens and teens. This is real work, people. And when we can focus on our own growth and nurturing the connection with our kids, we can move through the turbulence in a way that allows for relationships to remain intact. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am your fearless host. I'm a positive discipline trainer, space holder coach, and the adolescent lead at Sproutable. I am also the mama to a 20-year-old daughter and 17-year-old son walking right beside you on this path of raising our kids with positive discipline and conscious parenting. This show is meant to be a resource to you, and I work really hard to keep it real, transparent, and authentic so that you feel seen and supported. Today is an interview, and I have no doubt that what you hear will be useful to you. Please don't forget, sharing truly is caring. If you love today's show, please pass the link around, snap a screenshot, post it on your socials, or text it to your friends. Together, we can make an even bigger impact on families all around the globe. I'm so glad that you're here. Enjoy the show. All right. Hello, listeners. I'm so glad you're back to catch this conversation with my friend, Chris Willard. Dr. Willard is a clinical psychologist, author, and consultant based in Massachusetts. He has spoken in 30 countries and has presented at two TEDx events. He's the author of 20 books, including Alpha Breaths, which came out in 2019, Growing Up Mindful, which came out in 2016, and most recently, his book, How We Grow Through What We Go Through. His thoughts on mental health have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, mindful.org, cnn.com, and elsewhere. He teaches at Harvard Medical School. We Got to know each other on the bus to the Grand Mosque in Abu Dhabi last fall. Chris, I'm so excited to welcome you to the podcast. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here and to see you again and chat with you again. This yes. is fantastic. Yes, so, so, so good. Can you start by telling the listeners your story of getting into the work that you do? Yeah, it's a long and windy one. You know, my mom was a therapist, she was a psychologist, so I always sort of saw that work as a potential. She was a child psychologist and then a kind of general psychologist. She was an educator. Also, as I got older, I got this interest in mindfulness in particular. And the origin story I often tell is, you know, I never heard mindfulness when I was young, the word mindfulness, but I had these experiences of like, I remember these camp counselors saying like, walk in the woods as silently as you can, like a ninja. And that was a really peaceful experience. And it was actually a lot like mindful walking that I then later discovered. And if you've ever tried to walk and not make a sound, right, you're not thinking about the past or the future, worried about anything but each footstep and the texture of the floor. And it really brings you right into the moment. And they'd say, like, let's listen to the sounds in the forest, see what we can hear in the silence and doing like a basically a mindful listening exercise. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that counselors are probably trying to get us to just shut up, you know, in retrospect, but it's, you know, it really did plant these powerful seeds that then I had my own kind of bumpy adolescence and young adulthood, was in college, left college, struggling with depression, with substance abuse, with all kinds of stuff, took a few years off to you know, I don't know what language your listeners like. Maybe you could say to find myself. Maybe you could say get your shit together. You know, <laughs> however you want to put that. And uh, stumbled into mindfulness. Really, my parents actually dragged me onto this retreat with Tignat Han, and it was transformative. I was suddenly like, oh my gosh, I'm happy. I can focus. I'm creative. I feel like myself again. I stopped doing drugs. I've been sober now for more than 20 years. I was less depressed, less anxious. Like all of these things just really transformed. And I was like, I want to share this with everybody, you know, and I really, especially when I share this with young people, so they wouldn't have to kind of experience some of that. So finished my degree, worked as a special education teacher for a few years with adolescent sex offenders in the mm. school, teaching in special ed school. That was a really challenging job. I had no educational experience. I had never worked with teenagers. It was just like, oh my gosh, I am so far over my head. Wait, 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 wait. I have questions. <laughs> so you were in like a residential treatment center. Residential treatment center. Yeah. For adolescent sex offenders. Yep. And you taught mindfulness. Well, I tried to teach mindfulness. What did you do? Oh, you were a therapist. No, I was a classroom teacher. Oh, geez. with a classroom full of eleven to nineteen year olds, and I taught English, social studies, math, and science. Taught all of those things, and I taught creative writing, and I was trying to like maybe bring in a little bit of mindfulness. It was, okay. you know, like total train wreck, you know, and these kids are, you know, like getting restrained and screaming. I mean, oh my gosh. You know, I was totally overwhelmed. And, you know, so it was like getting every button pressed, being totally <laughs> just like, it was such a disaster. And part of actually what I realized was that the most important student to be teaching mindfulness to was actually myself. Like it was not those kids. It was like, could I take a few breaths in the parking lot before I went? into that building where I was immediately overwhelmed. Could I keep myself calm when the kids were having a meltdown, when the staff was having a meltdown, right? Could I keep myself compassionate and connected, you know, reading the files or hearing about some of the stuff that these kids had done that landed them there? And to me, that was actually the really powerful lesson was going from this guy that was like, I'm going to teach breathing. There'll be world peace in five years to like, oh my gosh, totally overwhelmed. These kids are not very interested in this, but who I can impact is myself. Mm -hmm. And if I'm well-regulated, maybe they'll occasionally be well-regulated, but there's no chance if I'm dysregulated that they're going to be remotely regulated. And I actually did have some successes, both with creative writing and also with sharing even some shorter mindfulness practices with those kids on a good day. And what I hope as I look back 20 some years later is, you know, that they might look back and think that was a moment where I felt safe. That was a moment that felt good. That was a moment that I felt a little bit more in control mm -hmm. in this out of control world. And of course, they'd of course been through all kinds of trauma, you know, on all sides of it. And that they can maybe look back and think that was a good experience. That was a healthy adult in my life. That was positive. And maybe you know, I want to try this mindfulness thing again, or maybe there are safe people out there who can help me with regulation and make different choices. And if anything, that's my hope as I look back, that that's what happened, you know, not that 
I fixed any of those kids or right. anything like that, but that they had a positive experience. And that continues to be my like kind of MO today is not like everyone's got to practice mindfulness, but like, can we give these kids a positive experience of mindfulness, of self-regulation? Can we give them a positive experience of a relationship with an adult mm -hmm. or with somebody else? And then maybe they've got that little spark, that glimmer that they can then go back to and build hope from of some kind of recovery or some kind of connection or something in their lives. I appreciate that on so many levels. I really love that realization you had around, okay, how can I take care of me? Like I think about co-regulation, right? And vicarious drama and how easy it is to get pulled in. And I'm imagining this setting as just being landmine after landmine of dysregulation with the kids and the adults. And like you were just in the fire, man, of just, okay, I get to practice what I yeah. preach for survival, <laughs> right? Like right. if I'm going to survive this, yeah. I got to do the work. Right. And I feel like in the context of parenting teenagers and teen brain development and, you know, what walks in the door, you're never sure. You know, my kids over time have somehow been trained. It's like they say the same thing every time they're going to drop something big on me. And it is, I have to tell you something, right? <laughs> and I know if I hear that, I have to tell you something, mm -hmm. I immediately say, okay. And I feel my feet on the floor and I pull back my shoulders and I take some long breaths and I prepare to receive something that could ultimately trigger, you know, like something that I'm not going to be excited to hear. Basically, my kids don't come to me and say, I'm thinking about doing this thing. My <laughs> right. kids say, I did this thing. I'm going to join a convent. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so powerful. And, you know, I have a lot of clients, and we're going to talk about this kind of towards the end of our conversation, but I have a lot of clients where the dysregulation in the family system is such that my work with them is really, how can you be with how it is right now? right? Like what are the practices and the tools that are going to support you being inside of, you know, the turbulent, rough, messy terrain, which is adolescence, right? Which is midlife, right. you know, because most of us, once our kids are adolescents, we're also, you know, in the midlife. So there's, if we're still with our original partners, there's, you know, that whole situation, you know, 25 years later, how does it feel? Right. How's that intimacy? Yeah. Like there's so many things and it's like- There's our own parents and caregivers that we're trying to take care. I mean, yes. I, can, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, my mom getting sick and dying in the last year. Yeah. You know, my therapist just told me yesterday he's retiring. Oh God, no. Oh, boomers. <laughs> Twilight of the boomers. <laughs> but it is like, I mean, all this stuff hits us at yeah. once. This, this storm. Yeah. 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 So your most recent book, How We Grow Through What We Go Through. My only problem with this book is that the font is too small for my eyeballs. <laughs> Speaking of midlife. <laughs> Speaking of midlife, I'm like, damn, Chris. <laughs> damn you and your small font. <laughs> Tell me about why you wrote this book. Why was it important for you to get this out there? I mean, for me, writing is about learning. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a writer. And I feel so lucky that I then was a teacher and then was a therapist and then being a therapist, let me be a writer. And we can come back to that. But that writing is how I learn. Like if I want to learn about something, I write about it. And I really wanted to learn more about trauma and this idea of post-traumatic growth, how we can come out more strong and more resilient through challenging circumstances. 
And it really emerged in the pandemic. It's actually been interesting going and doing talks. These people are like, don't talk about the pandemic. <laughs> no one wants to hear it. But it has impacted us, right? We have to acknowledge that. And it's still a thing. It has not gone away. Okay. I mean, we're in the middle of another surge right now. And, you know, I was just talking to a friend in China where there's a huge surge right now. But what happened was, you know, going from like the beginning of the pandemic and being like, you know, oh my gosh, I'm never going to work again. You know, what am I going to do in school? Schools are closed. Although it was only going to be two weeks, right? It was only going to be two yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah, quick. Three years later, here we are. And I was getting asked to suddenly, you know, from everything getting canceled to, can you talk about trauma? Can you talk about resilience? Can you mm -hmm. talk to our employees? Can you talk to our kids? And suddenly like, okay, I'm going to better learn about this. So I started reading and then I started writing because that's how I synthesize information. And I started doing workshops. One of the first things I stumbled into was that actually what's more likely to happen after a traumatic or challenging circumstance in our life is not just post-traumatic stress. But actually, we're more likely to experience this thing called post-traumatic growth. And actually, both happen at the same time, oftentimes. And when I say this, I also want to be cautious because one of the things I think that got popularized in a really healthy way or became part of the conversation during the pandemic is this notion of toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. And I want to be clear that this book isn't toxic positivity. If you're not feeling like you're growing right now, that's not about shame or the shoulds or anything like that. But I just want to try to plant the seed that it is possible, it is likely happening even if you can't see it. That's why it's important that we have caring, loving, supportive people, partners, friends, therapists, coaches, sponsors, whoever that is in our lives who can reflect back to us the growth that is happening in us. Mm. But that's where the book came from. It was the pandemic and this need for how can we be more trauma-informed? How can we also, not just be stuck in trauma, but what can we do to grow through it and grow through it and come through stronger? So to me, I hope it's a hopeful message. Mm -hmm. That's where it came from. It was started as a workshop and I wrote down the whole workshop and then I had a book. <laughs> That's where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, as I read it, I love the science of it. I learned so much around the science of trauma, but also all the practical application that you packed. That's when the font got really small, though, it's <laughs> in those sections. It looks beautiful, the design, but the font is small. I'm going to give them some feedback. Yeah, try your Kindle. Boil that <laughs> I wish it was on my Kindle. I really... But yeah, so educate us on the three types of trauma that you describe in the book. How does trauma show up in our lives? Yeah, I think it shows up in all kinds of ways and it dysregulates us in all kinds of ways and it dysregulates our nervous system. And so that to me impacts our bodies and our nervous system runs throughout our entire body and it impacts our brains, which is the biggest part of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. And it impacts our relationships. And we can be traumatized in any of these ways as well, like in our bodies, in our minds, in our psychologies, and in our relationships with broken trust. And, and oftentimes, Trauma is about all three of these coming together at once, right? We can think about the different kinds of violations that can occur about trust with the world and, and trust with others and even being able to feel like we can trust ourselves. And so thinking about resilience, I'm a big believer in what's called the biopsychosocial model of thriving and mental health and all of that. And it's kind of a fancy sounding word, but it basically, you know, when we were growing up, Casey, like, I don't know about you, I tried a million essays for classes. It was like, is it nature or is it nurture? Is it nature or is it nurture? Mm -hmm. What we talk about now is biopsychosocial, which basically is like, you know, what's our genes, biological, and what can we do to care for our bodies? That's going to make a difference. 
what is our brains, basically, <laughs> like what mm -hmm. brains are we born with? How do we perceive the world? Things like that. And then lastly, how do our relationships impact us? Mm -hmm. And so we can actually approach all of these. I mean, they can be damaged through trauma. But we can approach all of these for healing. We can find ways to heal and strengthen our bodies and make them more resilient, which becomes then the foundation, right? When we feel strong and empowered in our bodies, that really changes then how we interact with the world and how we feel about ourselves. It actually does start to change our thoughts. And I'm a therapist, I'm a believer in talk therapy, but like we can just talk and talk and talk and then eventually things will change. I don't entirely believe that's true. <laughs> I believe we really do have to act our way into a new way of thinking and feeling. We can't think and talk our way into a new way of feeling and being. And so we take different actions with our bodies, whether that's yoga, exercise, mindful eating, breath regulation practices, things like that, that can be really for all ages. It can be for parents, for kids, for us to do together. We can also bring more awareness to our brains, our minds. We can practice mindfulness ourselves with our families. We can become aware of what our triggers are, especially when our kids are adolescents, which make us feel like adolescents all over again. Oh, right? listen. <laughs> I first started working in schools. I remember like being like, why do I feel so insecure and so <laughs> And my supervisor yeah. was like, it's hitting every button from when you were in middle yeah, school. it's in the water. Like, just that was such a relief. And I'm sure I'll forget it again when I become a, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, but when my kids hit adolescence, I'll be like, why do I feel like so uncool? And it's like, <laughs> you know, and then the social piece, right? Yeah. Those can be so trauma, they can be a source of healing through co-regulation. Yeah. So anyway, that's sort of how the book is laid out. Yeah. So I've been getting groceries from Hungry Root for the last few months, and I am loving it. I use it to keep healthy snacks in the house, and I also order a few meal kits that are easy go-tos during the week. What I love is the variety that shows up in the box. Crunchy snacks, sweets, breakfast smoothies, whatever I've clicked as wanting comes to my door. My dietary wishes are different than my family's. The boys, Ben and Ian, they're always trying to build muscle and gain weight. I am not. Hungry Root gives so many options, it meets all of our needs. In our last box, we got cilantro lime chicken with jasmine rice, and it literally took me seven minutes to put together. Listen, after working all day and doing all the things for the fam, seven minutes to throw together dinner works for me. And the ingredients are good, like high quality good. Everything from Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. Save hours of planning, shopping, and cooking. Let Hungry Root deliver the food you love. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Joyful Courage podcast listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to hungryroot.com slash joy and get 40% off your first delivery and those free veggies. That's hungryroot.com slash joy. Don't forget to use our link so that they know we sent you. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. Are you old enough to remember TV dinners? They came in those tin trays and each part of the meal had its own little compartment. I remember eating those and watching Happy Days, followed by Three's Company, maybe a little Laverne and Shirley. I am that old. Well, the situation has been totally upgraded by Factor. Factor makes 
delicious, ready-to-eat meals. And unlike those quick meals of the past, every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including meals that are calorie smart, protein plus, and keto if that's your thing. Also, there's more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. In my last order, we got red chicken chili tamale bowls and Italian sausage pizza casserole, as well as other delicious meals that my family loved. Plus, there's breakfast and smoothies and all sorts of other add-ons to make life simpler while also keeping it healthy. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Right now, head to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use code joyful50 to get 50% off. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50 to get 50% off. Well, and I really love that you talk about, you know, the different entry points for tending to ourselves, right? And I think there's People, parents, and I say this all the time. My listeners are probably like, here she goes. You know, if you've made it all the way to having teenagers and haven't done any kind of personal growth, inner work, you're in for it, right? Like it's either now resist and it just is a shit show or like welcome to the personal growth and development workshop. You know, like the door's been opened since your child was born. Or be dragged. (laughs) You are welcome here. But really, you know, the whole parenting journey, there's so many opportunities. You know, when we're, I don't know if the right word is willing or aware enough or, you know, for me, it was really when my kids were one and four and I knew I wanted to do things differently. I knew there were some patterns that I was not going to repeat. And then... It was like, oh, and for me, for whatever reason, the visual, it was like a yellow brick road. Like, come on, give it to her. You're pissed. You're overwhelmed. You know what to do. You know, my body knew what to do. My body was like, we know what to do. This was modeled for us. We're going to lose our mind all over this four-year-old. And then taking the positive discipline parent educator training that I did way back then, You know, while I love kind of the tools and strategies of positive discipline, the other piece was who you be as a parent. You get to grow as a parent. And really, that was the beginning. And then a really good friend being like, have you ever heard of Brené Brown? You know, and like a couple other, like, have you ever heard of this thing? And being like, like, oh my gosh, there's so much here. And letting go of the shame of realizing, oh, I don't have to feel bad about myself that it's hard to break these patterns. You know, I get to integrate. I get to practice. I get to be willing in the moment when I notice my hackles are raised. Then it's still a practice, right? To say like, whoa, I'm about to lose my mind. I need to go tend to myself so I don't have too much cleanup to do in the end, right? Exactly. And like I often think, how do we not... Just And I think this is where mindfulness comes in or self-awareness or whatever work it is we do that helps us to be more self-aware. But how do we not just totally rebel from what our parents did and do the opposite? Like, I was deprived, so I'll spoil. I was spoiled, so I'll deprive. I was 
you know, and right. like, that's not healthy. How do we also not mindlessly repeat what they do, sort of repetition, compulsion, fall into that? But how do we borrow from each of those? What worked? What didn't work? Do that in a deliberate way. And what do we want to do that we've learned mm-hmm. from positive parenting, that we've learned from our own spiritual journey, that we've learned from friends, that we've learned from just things are different in 2023 than they were in the 80s and we were growing up. And how do I apply all of that to my parenting? And then, as you said, like, do what I can and pick up the pieces afterwards. And one of the, I think, most helpful and inspiring things that I heard a couple of years ago at a conference, and I've really taken this to heart, is, you know, like, conflict is okay. <laughs> like, I grew up really conflict diverse. So I repeated that mindlessly. And then realizing, like, conflict is okay, right? It's okay with our spouse. If we get in a conflict in front of the kids, we just need to model yeah. the repair in front of yeah. the kids. That's all. We can get into conflict with our kids, but we have to be the grown up and be the one that comes back together and not give the silent treatment and not be punitive and not be bitchy afterwards. We have to come back and say, you know what? I screwed up. I need to make an amends right now. And knowing that actually the research says that makes you a better parent, you're happier, and it makes your kid more resilient. (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, duh, of course, because they'll need to have conflicts, have rifts and have repairs and come back together stronger. That's like totally okay. And it's still a work in progress and it's still a work of ego reduction and humility to be <laughs> reminded like, okay, gotta, you know, apologize to mm-hmm. my wife in front of the kids and <laughs> you know, whatever it is, or apologize directly to my kid that I screwed this up or I screwed that up. But it's such a gift when we're able to do that, even though it can yeah. be a pinch too. Well, and if humility and accountability, personal responsibility, if these are characteristics that we hope our kids have learned to embody by the time they're adults, they have to see it. They have to see it. They have to experience right. it in relationship. Right. And those always come up when yeah. we do the lists. You know, when we, in my classes, we always start with two lists and what do you want to see? Who do you want your kid to be? Those always are on the list. So we got to model that. And I'm wondering too, coming back to trauma. So taking a few steps back for someone who's, you know, God bless them made it to adolescence and realizes, holy shit, there's a lot for me to work through here. Like my response does not match the situation. (laughs) The size of the situation, like I say to my eight-year-old. Yeah. When we start to notice that about ourselves, like what are some of the big tenants that when you work with people as they start to address their trauma and how their trauma is kind of taking the wheel of their life, what are some first steps for growing awareness, but then also not only growing the awareness, I mean, I'm thinking about like lengthening that gap between the trigger and the response and taking care of self and just kind of recognizing, oh, this isn't about this kid. This is about what happened to me or what I experienced. How can it fix us? Come on, Chris, you can do it. what I want to protect them from, how I want to not shame them, how I want, I think yeah. a lot about, you know, a kid, you know, a five-year-old, my friend Kevin sort of uses this example, Kevin Hawkins, great educator in, in Europe, you know, a kid walks into traffic, right? What do we do? We scream, we grab, we pull them back, you know, and we're, you know, and they're, they're looking at us terrified, right? Right. And we're pissed, right? But ideally what we can say is we can calm ourselves down <laughs> and we can say, I'm not mad. I was scared, right? Yeah. And you're okay. And I'm okay. And I love you. And then we come back together and we make that repair. And what that actually teaches the kid is that 
they're not a bad kid, that they made a mistake, that there is danger in the world, that we're willing to keep them safe, right? That they, you know, then learn how to internalize, okay, that's a mistake I don't want to make is wander into traffic, right? But the sooner we're able to get to the, you know, I'm not mad at you, right? I was scared about what mm-hmm. you did, right? Changing it from the person to the behavior, right? All that kind of stuff, right? Then they internalize a really different message around, I'm okay, I made a mistake. Now I feel safe enough to make mistakes. I can tell my parents that I made a mistake. I can tell other people I can be vulnerable, all of these things. And I learned what's dangerous and what's safe, right? Mm -hmm. And on top of it, then like, that's the three-year-old version, right? Then there's the, right, what you're going through, Casey, the mom, I got to tell you something, right? Which the one thing means you've done something right, right? That they're not hiding it from you, right? You're nailing it, in fact. Right. And then you're doing something else, right? By taking your breath, feeling your feet on the floor, counting to your five senses and all that good stuff. But that like what's happening then, right? When they're an adolescent and they make the mistakes that they are supposed to make when they're adolescents, Mm -hmm. right? We can say it's because I'm scared. I'm not angry. I'm not shaming you. And also, you know, whether that's around like, you know, they got too drunk or they made a bad choice or they're coming out to us in some way about some aspect of their identity, right? That we can you know, let them know that we love them for who they are, no matter what. And I think the more we know what our own triggers are, I think that's important. And that we work them out, not on our kids, hopefully, right? We work out our trauma, but we don't do it on our kids, but they may be the catalyst. Hopefully they are the catalyst for us doing it. And it's amazing what it brings up and the realizations and like, oh my gosh, like, wow, like my parents really do drink a lot or like, wow, they really, you know, like suddenly like mm-hmm. we see it in the stark relief of how our partner sees it or our ex-partner sees it and suddenly, right, these things become more clear. But when we're well-regulated, we can see that so much more effectively. And we can also you know, again, I don't want to say like work out our trauma on our kids, but we can work out the solution with our kids. We can talk about, you know, I mean, again, my kids are younger, they're four and eight right now, but it's like, you know, are playing, you know, backgammon the other day with my son. I'm like, thank God he plays backgammon and we're past like Monopoly and Candyland. But like, you know, it's (laughs) for real. Oh, this is the worst. (laughs) Agitated, you know, like, okay. I'm going to take a couple of breaths, like this game's getting a little stressful for me, right? So it's modeling it, you know, for him in that moment. We're learning these skills together, even if I don't have to tell him why I get yeah. triggered by games because my grandmother was so mean to me and so competitive when she played games and she accused me of cheating, even though I didn't. And like, what a bitch. Like, you know, it's like, I don't have to go into all of that until he's older, <laughs> yeah. but I can just know that like games kind of set me off sometimes <laughs> and that's yeah. shit. But here's what I do about it. Um, Yeah, I have a 17-year-old version of that, which is, you know, my son, again, I have to tell you something, we're driving in the car, I feel my feet, I take my breath, and then he shares about a choice that he had made the night before, and, you know, I could feel my physical response was there, and I managed to stay really calm and ask a lot of questions, and it was a pretty risky choice, Mm -hmm. and I did notice, like, it was important to me to say to him, like, I know that I'm keeping it together right now and staying really even keeled and calm. You need to know that my body is on high alert. This choice is really scares me, yeah. right? And so don't let my response, my like perceived regulated response, send you the message that I'm okay with this because I'm not. This is really scary. But what's more important to me is that you can process through what you did 
how it made you feel, how you're feeling about it now, right. how you'll navigate it if it shows up. Like, you know, and yeah, it was definitely one of those like, oh, yeah, case, good job. <laughs> but it would have been so easy to be like, are you I mean, and in my mind, I definitely had an are you fucking kidding? Me? <laughs> Why the fuck would you do that? Yeah. You know, yeah. moment, you know, and so just as another example of like, I'm not working it out on him, but I am being really honest and real about my fears. Because I think sometimes parents of teenagers, there's this perception like, well, if I don't get mad at them or punish them, then they don't, aren't going to connect the dots around this was the wrong choice. This is the wrong thing to do. And I don't think that that's useful. I know for me as a teenager getting in trouble and getting grounded, really just turned into, I got to get better at getting out the window and getting back in and not getting caught. Right. Right. It wasn't like, yeah, what is the underlying stuff going on for me? And why is this something that I'm willing to do? And what kind of risk is this? And I think that's where, you know, if the goal is to (laughs) hopefully get them to the place of this is not behavior that serves me, thinking that our threats of and our anger and I don't want to piss off my parents or I don't want to get into trouble, you know, for a lot of us, and I'm guessing just from what you shared a little bit about your experience, like that's not top of mind in, you know, in the choices that adolescents are making. Some of them perhaps, right? But even in that situation, what happens when they, me, go off to college and nobody's paying attention? I went off the rails once I got to college. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you know, that piece about, you know, one of my favorite studies, actually, I'm doing a course again, where I was talking about this in the course and kind of came back to this study about the Pinocchio George Washington story and the boy who cried wolf. And they gave these kids like all three stories. And, you know, the boy who cried wolf, George Washington, you know, cut down the cherry tree, confessed to his father, I cannot tell a lie. And the boy who cried wolf who gets eaten by the wolf at the end. And they gave the kids these stories and then they they were playing a game and they like gave them an opportunity basically to cheat. They looked the other way. And kids will generally actually cheat. Like people are dishonest. Like it's not, you know, it's like, how do we cope yeah, with it? It's a shortcut. And like what, what happened was like when they gave the kids the George Washington story beforehand, those kids like, yeah, they were less likely to cheat. And the kids who got the boy who cried wolf story, they were more likely to cheat than the kids who got the George Washington story. And so when we tell our kids, like, you're a liar, you're punished for the lie, right? We actually, as you said, you get better at, you know, figure out, you know, again, I like lubricate the window with the soap. I just Googled it, you know, now I'm going to get out the window and I can like (laughs) jump down quietly if I wear these shoes. Like, that's exactly what happens. Like, it's not that we have bad kids. It's not that you or I were bad teenagers. It's like, these are the conditions under which this is what's going to happen is you're going to get better at dishonesty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's human. It's not about bad kids, good kids. It's how we're all wired, unfortunately. Yeah. How we draw out their best and not try to punish out their worst, I think, is the way I try to flip it. And I don't know as much about positive parenting, but maybe that's what it is. Draw out their best, not punish out their worst. But I love that. I love that. Let's coin that. Let's do it. <laughs> Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. 
Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. It's relationship, right? It's really, when I think about positive discipline and the work that I do, it is centering that relationship. And is easy when things are going well. And it's more challenging because I think of the fear and our past trauma and conditioning when things are going sideways, which, hello, everyone listening, things will go sideways. It's not a character flaw. It's not you doing something wrong. It's the teen brain. So Chris, so when that happens, when the sideways thing shows up and that fear response comes up and maybe it's connected to trauma, maybe it's connected just to like the basic human condition, Can you talk a little bit about some of the tools that you mentioned in your book that would be useful for a parent that's listening who's like, yeah, my kid, I find things out because oftentimes it's not, hey, I have to tell you something. It's like the school called, (laughs) you know? So what are some tools that you can offer up that can help a parent who becomes dysregulated based on their, you know, teens behavior and their own experience to come back to themselves so that they can stay connected and stay in relation and stay in the process of supporting our teens and making sense of their choices. Yeah. And I think it's about finding that place that we can pause as a parent. And what do we do in that pause in that space between stimulus and response, you know, and the, you know, how do we respond rather than react to what's going on or how, you know, we will react internally. How do we not react externally? Right. Yeah, exactly. Important distinction. Yeah. I think that's a super important distinction because I think sometimes people think, oh, like it's supposed to be like a full system calm. And it's like, well, (laughs) we're not like, we're not robots, right? There's no landing at this place of now I'm really good at this because I don't have any response, right? Or negative response. So thank you for that distinction. Well, I think like you said, like when we go in prepared, which I think like, you know, people that are interested in positive parenting and in mindfulness and who listen to your podcast, like you're in good shape, you know, like we're probably preaching to the choir in some ways, but you will still have some shit that's unexpected that comes up. I have no doubt anyone listening. No doubt. But the more we can anticipate, right, the more actually, you know, we're, we're less likely to have that big reaction. And then the book also talks about just these other skills for regulating our nervous system, for co-regulating and for practicing co-regulation as our kids are growing up, right? So it is like, maybe it's doing, you know, some silly mindful breaths together. Maybe it's doing gratitude roses and thorns before bed when they're kids, you know, so that by the time they're teenagers, there's this built up trust. It's saying things like, 
you know, you won't be in trouble for stealing the cookie. You know, I just want to know, you know, whether you did or not. It'll make me happy if you tell me the truth. Like that when we do that, right, then that creates, you know, more openness and more trust for that co-regulation to happen when it's time to happen, when we get triggered, and then we can co-regulate with the kid or the kid is triggered. And then we can co-regulate and both regulate ourselves down where it can just get that much faster into the conversation. We're both using our words and we're both, I would say, learning something from that interaction. What are we both like? This is a question we should ask ourselves as parents. What are we both learning from that shitty decision that your kid made, Casey? No, what are we both learning from the conflict? What are we both learning from the disappointment, right? That that's important as well, that we're walking away with a lesson learned as well as the kid walking away with a lesson learned, that the teachable moment is not just about teaching the kid, it's about us learning something too and not having it be a one-way street and getting away from the regulation piece. But I think, you know, when kids are young, you know, it's important to laugh and have real quality of presence. I think Playing games is an amazing co-regulation strategy. I think about games. We were playing charades at a friend's house the other night, and that's teaching. You know, we're all laughing together. We're all having fun. We're actually learning. When we practice a game like charades, we're learning what's called theory of mind, which is, can I try to think about what my daughter is thinking about? Can she Mm -hmm. try to think about what I'm thinking about? Can I get inside her head? Can she get inside my head, when we play 20 questions or I spy, that's actually doing the same thing, which is one of the most important emotional intelligence skills that we can offer our kids is can they have the perception of what another person is thinking? It's the basis of empathy. It's the basis of co-regulation. It's the basis of trust. It's all it's the basis of compassion. It's all of those things. And it's also important academically. What's the teacher going to ask me on the test? They usually ask Mm -hmm. this kind of question. What's my boss going to want from me? They usually want this thing from me, right? What is my girlfriend like and want for her birthday or, you know, two month anniversary Mm -hmm. when they're teenagers, right? That I think, you know, games can be wonderful in teaching some of those skills as well as teaching self-regulation, emotional intelligence skills when kids are younger. And then figuring out developmentally, like, what does that mean as they get older, right? Into teenagehood, finding the times, you know, when we can have appropriate conversations. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. the the car is sort of a captive audience, but it's also like, you know, sitting down with a kid and making eye contact with them and staring them down is kind of terrifying. And I, I remember that from being a kid. And I think about that as a therapist, it's like, what kind of kid, especially a teenage boy wants to like stare at me and tell me about his feelings. It's like, oh, let's like do something side by side. Right. Again, not to like totally gender stereotype, but I think that's why men, you know, take walks together, go fishing together, repair stuff together. Again, you know, I don't want to get into, you know, hard and fast with gender rules here, but like, this is why with some kids, that's what resonates because it's mediated by something else. Eye contact isn't as threatening. These are other ways of regulating and co-regulating and doing things together. Mm. I think that starts to teach some of that so that in the moment, you know, when we start to calm our breath down, the child can start to calm their breath down. So then at the moment, right, we're more likely to be able to co-regulate together or we're upset because we're having a tough day at Mm -hmm. the office or whatever. And our kids say, hey, dad, what happened at work today? Like, do you need a minute? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And co-regulating back to us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I have a tool. I loved reading about the section in your book that does talk about regulation and tools. And I have a practice called breath, body, balcony mm. and moving start because, 
you know, it's hitting the fan. Like for me, the visual is I'm standing at the sink and my whole body is rigid and I'm just so pissed, mm-hmm. right? And in that moment, I can't talk myself out of being pissed. Right. right. And most parents that I work with can't either. And so this tool is really like the back door. When I think about the breath, it's like the back door to regulation, right? If all I can do is lengthen, and I think you call it the remote control. Or I talk about the breath being a remote control or the reset button. Yeah. 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 And when we can lengthen our breath and really tell the nervous system a story through breath that I'm okay, mm-hmm. right? And then moving into the body and kind of finding those places of tension and getting out of fighter stance for me, pulling the shoulders back, opening yep. my heart space. And then there's like room for me to be on the balcony and look at what's happening versus from what's happening. Mm. And I often have a lot bigger perspective. And just reading through your book, it felt like that was also presented. And I think that's, you know, in those moments, moms and dads who are listening, who are fabulous parents and get dysregulated because our teenagers drive us <laughs> berserko sometimes because of those sweet brains of theirs, you know, and it feels like, but I'm so pissed right now, you know, using breath as the entry point can be a really powerful practice. Yeah. Right. Because you have a couple of different breath practices, right? Yeah, I think I feel like you said that. our posture, like rolling back our shoulders, yeah. right? Getting out of that fighter posture or that sort of like faint, you know, I talk about the four Fs. It's like fight, flight, freeze, forget it, or maybe with teenagers, fuck it response. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. how do we get out of those postures and into more of what we might call attentive befriend or mindfulness and compassion? So posture, I think, is huge, right? But breath work, I think also, we know that actually we have different nerve endings in the bottom of our lungs. So we breathe deeply and slowly. That's where the reset button is. It restarts our system. Just like, you know, you call Comcast or whoever and your computer's not working. The internet's not working. Like restart your computer. It fixes things 95% of the time. It's what I tell my parents, right? You know, like your phone's not working. Restart it, dad. But like that reset button, that reset breath is so key. So Finding ways to do that as parents, right? Maybe it's just as simple as like the 7-Eleven breath, like breathing in, counting up to seven, extended exhale all the way out to 11. With our kids, we can make it fun with little kids. Like my book, Mm -hmm. Alpha Breaths with my friend Daniel, we do, you know, like the butterfly breath, just gently flapping your wings as you breathe in. And as you breathe Mm -hmm. out of the hot chocolate breath, right? Breathe in smelling, blow out cooling off that these are maybe kid friendly with teenagers. And I think finding these other ways. And one of the things about teenagers is a breath regulation practice that they do to us all the time, right? Is uh, sighing, right? Right. Like, oh, right. You're <laughs> so annoying, mom. Right. My son started to do this. He's eight. I'm like, too soon, dude. Like, don't even. Yeah. You're in the pre-adolescent. <laughs> you can hear Peri-adolescent. <laughs> I can hear them. Yes. He's very mature for his age. I think that's what it is. Yeah, advanced. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> But actually, I'll teach kids sometimes, like, do a sigh, do a silent sigh, right? You're not going to get in trouble. It's kind of passive aggressive, right? But like, you won't get in trouble. Why not that long silent sigh? You're extending your exhale. You're pushing all the air out. You're hitting that reset button. You're calming yourself down. And that's actually, you know, a practice that teens might do. <laughs> yeah. Or I'll share it as like when your friend is overwhelmed, maybe you want to share this with them or do a 7-Eleven. Right. Or do a, 
you know, leaning back, putting your hands behind your head is another one that no one has to know you're doing that. Like, right. And it regulates. And even as adults, of course, you know, and I'm sure you do this in your workshops too, you know, talk about posture, right? What posture are we demonstrating? Not just to ourselves that saying, stay angry or stay F it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or be, yeah, yes. Safely. Right. But we're communicating to them. What posture are we holding that's communicating to them? We're present. We're compassionate. We're caring. We want to stay connected. What are those postures that are inviting more connection from them? Because they will mirror whatever mm -hmm. posture. And especially from us, who's their parent, who's the authority figure, right? That's hopefully where the imprinting has happened. If we're yeah. ready to fight, they're ready to fight. If we're ready to flee, they're ready to flee. If we're ready to, you know, attend and show up for them, then they're more likely to also. And that goes back to, again, we have to be the grown up, which sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. Chris, I have like a hundred other things I want to talk to you about. <laughs> we do not have time. So everybody that's listening, I want you, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, well, my kid's not going to breathe with me or, you know, whatever your yeah buts are right now, I want you to go back and remember what Chris said at the beginning about his experience with the teens that he worked with in the residential inpatient place. And sometimes your work is not to, you know, like you said, fix the kid, but it's instead to focus on yourself, right? And so, so much of what we've talked about today, I really want my listeners to remember it is enough for you to look inside and to do your own work and to trust that that is impacting your kids and your relationship with your teens, even the surly ones, even the ones that are having a really rough go of it right now, it matters. So I just, I loved this conversation. This was so good. Ours. And As we did when we were hanging out. A couple I know, we love each other. So good, so good. So as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to make sure that you leave listeners with today? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, just remembering too, it doesn't always have to be you, especially with parents of teens. I think, you know, as a therapist, I think sometimes, you know, parents send their kids to me and they're, they feel like they're at the end of their rope or they also feel a little bit threatened. Like, oh my gosh, does the kid love the therapist more than me or the coach? Or like what I always see with parents who are invested in their kids, who are the ones who get help, who are the ones who listen to great podcasts, right? That kids may rebel and push back, but that I feel like you know, and sometimes they do, you know, seek out other adults to rely on for a while. And that's actually a really good thing. And our job, mm -hmm. my job as a therapist is to sort of build a bridge like back into the family and they will maybe rebel, but they will come back to the values that, that you planted in them when they were young. And, you know, I, I say this quoting someone my mom was in like a parenting support group with when I was a train wreck 22 year old, you know, who was like, who said, you know, like you did a great job parenting, you know, like he'll get his shit together, he'll get sober. You just wait for that Mother's Day card when he's like 25. And it's true. And she said that, you know, she told me that story when she got a really sweet Mother's Day card when I was 25 or 26 after I'd been yeah. through all that. And I'm back to the values that my parents instilled of kindness and compassion and self-care and, and all those other things. And I'm back to some of my own path and my own stuff too as mm. a parent. And so I feel also really lucky that I had the parents that I did despite their yeah. imperfections. Um, and I want to yeah. too, but yeah, just keep up the Beautiful. good work, everybody. You're not alone either. <laughs> For, <laughs> so. sure. For sure. 
So what does joyful courage mean to you, Chris? That's the last question I always end with. What does joyful courage mean? Oh my gosh. To me, it's just like letting ourselves have fun with all these crazy adventures. I mean, I, I think about, you know, how we got to know each other was through joyful courage of like, sure, let's get on a 14, 18 hour flight with someone we don't really know who says there's going to be this cool thing. And let's get in front of an audience of people from a vastly different culture and see what the hell happens and just have fun the whole way. And that took a lot of courage and a lot of joyful courage. And now we're friends. And that's an example <laughs> is having fun doing those things that are scary. Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that. Where can people find you and follow your work? Yep. I'm too old for TikTok. Um, maybe I'll be on there by the time people listen. But on, on Instagram, where I mostly is at Dr. Chris Willard, Dr. Chris Willard, videos and little posts and stuff like that, monthly challenges. I'm at on the web at drchristopherwillard.com, drchristopherwillard.com. And I'm technically on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me at Dr. Chris Willard, those places too, but I'm not super active on Twitter, but Facebook and Instagram. Okay. We will make sure that all of your links are available in the show notes. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. This was so great. Thank you so much for listening in today. Thank you to my Sproutable partners, as well as Chris Mann and the team at Podshaper for all the support with getting this show out there and making it sound good. Check out our offers for parents with kids of all ages and sign up for our newsletter to stay connected at besproutable.com. Tune back in later this week for our Thursday show, and I'll be back with another interview next Monday. Peace. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.